I'm going to be reading from Numbers 21, uh, 4 through 9. <clears throat> so they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at, the, at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that you offer us in the midst of judgment. That God, we can see from... Um, stories of old, uh, stories from the old covenant people of God and where they uh, slipped up or blatantly sinned and rebelled against you and where they had to come face to face with that sin and confess it to you and repent and turn from it and then seek salvation as you supplied it. Not how they would have liked it, but how you supplied it. And so, God, I pray that that would uh, translate to us today of where we see the salvation that you offer through your son, Jesus. And that, God, we would be eternally grateful for that path of salvation. And I pray that we would enter through it. As you supply that way of salvation, we would do it to a T, how you expect us to walk in that salvation. And then, God, you would supply us with, with any um, deliverance we may need from evil desires, lusts of the flesh, temptations that we face, that, God, you, by your power, the same gospel power we have received in Christ, we would be supplied with a way of deliverance out of those desires, out of those temptations, that we would see uh, ourselves overcome these temptations purely by the power that you supply. So God, I pray that we would learn tonight from these examples you give us throughout history with your people and supply us with what we need to live differently than we often see them live. That we would learn from their missteps. That we would walk the path of salvation rightly. God, would you bless us tonight as we meet with you and you meet with us. Uh, we are sitting at your feet to hear from you tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A little over a decade ago, I had a terrible campout experience at Fall Creek Falls. Now, that's nothing to say anything against Fall Creek Falls. I love Fall Creek Falls. It's beautiful. But this weekend was terrible. You see... Uh, I took uh, three friends and myself to Fall Creek Falls, and just everything that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, one friend had talked to his girlfriend the entire night before and was zapped of any energy for the rest of the weekend. Another friend, uh, 15 minutes into the, the woods, walks right through poison ivy and is itching tirelessly the entire weekend. And then another friend who was responsible for bringing the tent forgot the rain fly that goes on top of the tent to protect from moisture invading the tent. And so we got rained on. 
He also forgot to secure the cooler where we kept our food, and uh, and a raccoon got into it the first night we were there, ate all our lunch meat, all our hot dogs. It was a terrible weekend. And worst of all, I paid 200 bucks for it, for the food, the gear, and the gas to get there. We learned a lot from our mistakes that weekend. Uh, The main thing being, don't go camping. In the words of Jim Gaffigan, there is no such thing as a happy camper. God's people also learned from a terrible time out in the wilderness. And the Apostle Paul tells us what we can learn from their bad experience, their bad example from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to correct them on their division and answer any questions uh, they had on particular issues in the church. Uh, One of the issues they wrote to Paul about specifically was whether or not they could eat food offered to idols. Paul accused some Christians of becoming puffed up with their right and accurate knowledge of God and idols because it was causing some of the weaker brothers and sisters in Christ um, to stumble, and it harmed their conscience. And then Paul used himself as an example, saying he has made it a practice to surrender his rights, like eating food offered to idols or even marriage, Uh, but specifically uh, receiving payment for his gospel labor. Uh, He surrendered these rights all for the sake of the gospel. And he was glad to surrender those rights for the substantial reward that awaited him in heaven. And he says he disciplines himself so that he wouldn't be disqualified from receiving that reward. And then he continues to speak to the issue of food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 22 together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 22 say this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just move in our hearts now to hear uh, this word uh, preached to our hearts that, God, we would give up the idols that we tend to craft and make and worship from our hearts, and we would do it all for your glory to worship you, our God and our Creator. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Tonight's sermon title is Learning from Bad Examples. Learning from Bad Examples. And I want us to learn three lessons from God's people in the wilderness tonight. Three lessons to learn from God's people in the wilderness. Uh, The first of which, God's blessings do not equate to his approval. God's blessings do not equate to his approval. And we see that in verses 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is informing the Corinthians on the history of God's people. He does not want them to be unaware because there is much to learn from these examples in the past. Uh, If I can illustrate it this way, let's say you're a teenager uh, right now watching the events unfold of Russia invading Ukraine. And you don't know what's going on. You, you haven't heard the history of what happened in World War II. You don't know anything about a guy named Adolf Hitler. And so an adult that you can trust that's knowledgeable on these things would take it upon himself or herself to inform you of the dangers of having a power-hungry madman invade another country completely unprovoked. 
We can learn from the events of the past, no matter how grim they are. Paul does not want the church in Corinth to be ignorant of the history of God's people because, yes, we share a rich history of God's blessing. It's true. But also because we share their sinful nature and we can learn from their bad examples. But first, the blessings. Paul says, our fathers were all under the cloud. And by this, he means the Israelites being led in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Uh, We see this in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 through 22. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God was visibly present with his people in the wilderness and he led them very closely. Paul also mentions that they passed through the sea. And by this, he is, of course, referencing the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, the the parting of the Red Sea. The Israelites were provided a way of escape from their enslavement to Pharaoh and Egypt. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 through 25. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord, Yahweh, fights for them against the Egyptians. What the cross, burial, and resurrection is to new covenant believers like us, the exodus was for the old covenant believers. From the night of the Passover to the parting of the Red Sea, God was rescuing his people from bondage and leading them to everlasting life in the promised land. It is a parallel event to the saving work accomplished in the life, death, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Just like we look back at the gospel for our source of power, so it was with the Israelites, the Jews, and the Exodus. And Paul recognizes the parallel nature of these events, which is why he says in verse 2 that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Israelites were saved in the midst of judgment. Whenever you see water in the Old Testament, it usually, it's usually a depiction of God's judgment. So take, for instance, the flood destroying the earth and its inhabitants for their sin. Or take Jonah and at the bottom of the waters in the belly of the fish for running away from the command of the Lord. And then the Red Sea, 
which came crashing down on the Egyptians who pursued God's people. That is some of the rich symbolism behind our baptism. We go under the water, the sign of God's judgment upon the earth, deserving death. But we come up out of the water to show that we have been saved in the midst of judgment. We followed the guiding presence of God and he rescued us, praise be to God. So if I can give you an applicational point on this topic, it would be this. If you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it is expected that you would be baptized by immersion, a symbol of salvation through judgment. There's a lot of symbolism in our baptism. There's a lot of meaning, and it's rich, and it's founded in God's word. And this is just one aspect of it. We're baptized by immersion. We go under the water and come up out of the water because it is a picture of God's salvation through judgment. You'll often hear baptism referred to as the first step of obedience. It isn't something that you really have to prepare for, but simply walk in. Whether it's the baptism of the Old Testament or the New, it is something that occurred very close to salvation. Now, full transparency, that is not the case for me. I was saved probably around 10 years old, and I didn't get baptized until I was 17. But if I could go back and do it differently, I would. I would have gotten baptized a lot younger because the act of obedience could have kept me from a whole lot of blatant disobedience that I experienced between my salvation and my baptism. I was petrified, terrified of being in front of people which is really funny when you consider what I do for a living. If you're scared to be baptized like I was, I think it's actually a mercy of God. You you kind of bear the weight of the the responsibility. And I think that's a mercy of the Lord because it's, it's part of a test to see how willing you are to follow Jesus, who was baptized. And it leads to a great sense of joy afterwards. If you're interested in getting baptized, all you have to do is talk with me and I will, help, I will happily help you through that process of walking in obedience of what Jesus is calling you to do. The Apostle Paul also mentions the Israelites ate the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink. And he is referring uh, to what is called manna in the wilderness, which literally means, what is it? And we see that in Exodus chapter 16. Verses 13 through 15. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew, uh, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "What is it?" For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. God provided quail, uh, but more specifically manna for them to eat. And he also provided water for them to drink through a rock, which spiritually, Paul says, was Christ. And we see that in Exodus chapter 17, verses 6 through 7. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, And water shall come out of it, 
and the people will drink. And Moses did so in, in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Did you catch that? All these have been chronological. God has guided them through a pillar of cloud, parted the Red Sea, vanquished their enslavers, fed them regularly with a brand new created substance, and his people were still complaining, grumbling, and quarreling. This clues us into why Paul says in verse 5 that in spite of all these spiritual blessings, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So if we can learn anything to take away from these first five verses, I think it is this. It makes no difference how blessed you think you are. If you are rebelling against God or have a negative attitude towards God, he doesn't approve of your actions or your attitude. It doesn't matter how blessed you think you are. If you are rebelling against God or have a negative attitude towards him, and I'd also add his people, he doesn't approve of your actions or your attitude. The people of God were blessed beyond measure, yet God was not pleased with most, most of them, the text says because they did not trust him to provide for them. What is it that you've been grumbling about lately? Are you trusting God or are you shaking your fist at him even after what he has done for you in the gospel? We can learn a lesson in gratitude from the Israelites here, not that they exhibited it, but because they didn't. But we can also learn our second lesson from God's people in the wilderness God's people cannot desire evil, especially idolatry. God's people cannot desire evil, especially idolatry. And we see that in verses 6 through 11. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul continues to inform the Corinthians on the history of God's people so that they can learn from their bad example. The purpose in having these events recorded in history is to teach God's people not to desire evil. He references the incident with the golden calf. Do you remember it? While Moses is on the mountaintop receiving instruction from the Lord on the Ten Commandments, God's people are down at the bottom, scheming to make for themselves a carved image of their gods that they could worship and make sacrifices to for bringing them out of Egypt. Man-made images 
that steal the glory of God. We read about it in Exodus chapter 32, verses 3 through 4 and verse 6. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, the brother of Moses. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And here's the reference that Paul makes. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They wanted to worship a God of their own making, and they wanted to worship it their way. Then Paul tells the Corinthians that we must not indulge in sexual immorality as they did. And he reflects on a lesser known event in the Old Testament in which God's people were having sex with people of another nation and giving themselves to Baal worship because of it. And so God sends a plague on his people for their sin and he did not relent until the ones who had committed that sin were killed. In other words, until the community repented as a whole. And then Paul mentions the story with the fiery serpents that we had Erica read for us tonight. God's people weren't trusting God. They became impatient because of their lack of food and water. They tested God and he sent fiery serpents to bite them. Yet we heard that God still provided a way of salvation through judgment, didn't he? He says in Numbers 21, verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. All they have to do is look at it, and they'll be healed. And this event is pretty significant, isn't it? Because we hear Jesus mention and make direct correlation from the bronze serpent to himself lifted high on the cross in his conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee who comes to Jesus to have a conversation at night in John chapter 3. We read Jesus tell him in verses 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In every one of those examples, there were factions in the community of God's people who were overthrown in the wilderness. They desired evil. They lusted after what other nations had. False gods with no power. Sensual relationships with no commitment. Entitlements on their time. Where do you measure up? Where have you given yourself over to, say, your phone this week? What does your screen time look like if we were to look? How are you looking at others made in the image of God as people or as props for your own selfish gain? How are you doing on waiting for the Lord's timing on the things that you think you deserve? If I can give you a point with this in mind, it would be this. You cannot commit idolatry and remain in the church. 
God will weed out those in his community who worship something other than him. He'll do it in a way that no person or man can. You cannot commit idolatry and remain in the capital C church. God will weed out those in his community who worship something other than him. There's a lot we can learn from these bad examples, which is why we still make a point to read the Old Testament, don't we? Even though we are new covenant believers, one lesson we can learn from another perspective of these bad examples of God's old covenant people is God's perspective. Our third lesson is God's faithfulness is vital to overcome temptation. God's faithfulness is vital to overcome temptation. And we see that in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to. To endure it. God's faithfulness is vital to overcome temptation. This verse makes a staggering promise. If you haven't memorized 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, I would commend that to you as a verse worthy of memorization because it is a beautiful promise. God will never allow a temptation that we cannot withstand because he will provide the power to escape it through endurance. This is not to be confused with the lie that is circulating in the American church today that God will not give you more than you can handle. Those are two completely different statements. And so to put them side by side, I want to give you the truth and the lie. The truth is what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God will never allow a temptation that we cannot withstand because he will provide the power to escape it through endurance. The lie we see all over social media. God will not give you more than you can handle. How do we make sense of these two statements? Well, there is a key difference between these two statements. The first statement is within the general context of temptation and applied specifically here to the issue of idolatry. While the second statement sounds really, really good, it flies in the face of a God who consistently gives his people more than they can handle to make them realize their dependence upon him. In fact, this verse here, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, shows us how much we rely on God's power and faithfulness because left to ourselves, we will give ourselves over to every temptation that rears its ugly head. But if we know God, he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can withstand because he is faithful to provide a way out by way of endurance. In other words, you're not the one handling it. God is. It's his power. And if you find yourself giving yourself over to temptations, it's because you aren't accessing the power of God. We'd like to think that 
The kindness of God protects us from every challenge that may come our way, but that isn't the kindness of the Lord. That is the kindness of a God of your imagination who bows the knee to your functional God, your feelings. Your feelings. No, the God of the Bible will absolutely give you something you cannot handle to show you by his mercy that he is the only one who can handle it? That is the loving kindness of God. That he wakes you up from your drowsy stupor to see that you are and always have been dependent on him. And he is always willing to be present with you in the wilderness. He will show you the way of escape by helping you endure the trials and the temptations as they come. You need only trust him and walk in step of his commands. Pastor, this isn't what I've been taught through social media. This isn't the theology I've built solely around my verse of the day. You're right. You're right. It is different. Let anyone who thinks he or she stands take heed lest he or she fall. So what do we do with these lessons? Bad examples and a faithful God. Well, let's try these out. Let's apply them to God's people, past, present, and future. Let's apply these lessons to God's people, past, present, and future. The first, the Israelites should have trusted God. The Israelites saw mighty acts of God's deliverance and providence that we'll never see. The ten plagues in Egypt, the Lord guiding them by a a pillar of cloud and fire, the parting of the Red Sea, and on and on and on. They should have trusted God, that he was a good God, that he was for them, and he would continue to show his faithfulness to them. But they didn't trust God. They grumbled. They complained. They quarreled. They doubted. They wanted to return to their their shackles in Egypt. They wanted to take shortcuts. They wanted a God like other nations and to worship him their way. They should have known better. But only a faithful remnant made it through the wilderness and into the promised land. All right, well, what about the Corinthians? The Israelites should have trusted God. The Corinthians would have fled idolatry. And hearing what Paul had to say, they would have fled idolatry. After hearing these bad examples, the Corinthians would have learned from them. They would have taken Paul's words to heart as as he finishes out the passage, applying the lessons directly to their issue of food offered to idols. We see that in verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? 
What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? When asked the question, can Christians eat food offered to idols? Paul's answer is complex. But not impossible. First, back in chapter 8, he said, look, balance your biblical knowledge with sacrificial love so that your weaker brother or sister in Christ wouldn't stumble. Then, back in chapter 9, he said, look at my personal example of me surrendering my rights for the substantial reward of seeing people saved to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And now here in chapter 10, he says, Flee idolatry. He informs the church in Corinth of the spiritual reality behind the meat offered to idols and eating in pagan temples. It could be demonic. He provides a dichotomy for the church. You cannot drink from the cup of demons and drink from the cup of the Lord. You cannot eat from the table of demons and eat from the table of the Lord. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, an ordinance that we're going to learn about in a few weeks. If the Corinthians were wise, they would have fled from idolatry upon hearing these words from Paul. Rather than eat at pagan temples and participate in something that was possibly demonic and driving a wedge between each other, they would have fled from idolatry. Paul made a solid case for why it was in their best interest to abstain. And we have every right to believe they would have received his warning and taken heed lest they fall. All right, so that's the Israelites, that's the Corinthians. Well, what about the young adults? What about the young adults ministry? Will it be said one day that the young adults could have experienced renewal? What about us? A decade from now, what will be said of us? What will be said of the young adults ministry at Bellevue Baptist Church post-COVID? Will we look back on this era as one in which we took delight in being present with the Lord together? Will we flee idolatry by destroying the idols in our midst? Will we surrender our rights for the substantial reward in the capital K kingdom? Will we balance our knowledge with sacrificial love? Will we be a people unified by prioritizing the gospel above all else? Or will it be said of us, that we did a good job of keeping up appearances. We did all the things you're supposed to do to maintain an age-specific ministry of the church. We opened our Bibles a lot, but we never read them. We liked serving the community when it was convenient for us. We pursued leadership until we disagreed with others in leadership. We could have experienced renewal, but we didn't really trust God. 
We could have seen revival break out in Memphis, but no one really wanted to give up their idols. No one would ever say that about us. I I thought the same thing when I was a college student. I was part of a ministry of a church uh, 12 years ago. And it was a ministry that met for worship like this, met in small groups like this. And I would have thought any one of those people would go on to continue loving the Lord. But 12 years later, I can count on one hand how many of those people love the Lord. A room this size. I can count on one hand how many of them truly cherish their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Atheists, agnostics, homosexuals, drunkards, nominal Christians, political zealots, people I used to worship the God of the Bible with have turned their back on their God and towards their idols. May it never be the case for us. May it never be said of us. If I can leave you with a main point tonight, it'd be this. Be warned. God is faithful to overthrow those who desire evil. But he is also faithful to help you overcome temptation. God is faithful to overthrow those who desire evil. But he is also faithful to help you overcome temptation. And this comes at a warning. That is Paul's main emphasis in this passage. He is warning the church in Corinth. Have you had the thirst of your soul quenched by the spiritual rock that is Jesus Christ? Have you been bitten by sin and looked up at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. This is how we know God is faithful, that he sent his only begotten Son to live and die for us. He has provided the ultimate escape from judgment And that is the saving work of Jesus on the cross and through the grave for all who would call on him to be their Lord and Savior. Have you done that? Our ability to fight temptation is tied directly to our understanding of the gospel. It is God's power to save us from our sin, past, present, and future. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't get our lives together. We don't clean up the hot mess. We lean into the abundant grace and power of God available to us in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. You want to flee idolatry? You can only do it while being firmly planted in the gospel. And if that's solidified in your life, You can fight the idols that you face. Maybe one of those was mentioned tonight. Has your view of baptism become an idol for you? Flee from it. Schedule a time to come talk to me about whether or not you should be baptized. What about approval? 
Have you been excusing your idol worship because you're convinced you're, you've convinced yourself that God doesn't mind? Just look at all the blessings that keep on coming. Repent of your sin before it is too late. He will weed out idol worship in his community one way or another. What about your motives? Are you here tonight with an ulterior motive? Maybe you aren't here to worship the God of the Bible. Maybe you're here to meet somebody of the opposite sex that, and you've made that primary. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. So get your priorities straight. And then image, uh, an idol in my life that I had to flee. Right? Think about this concept of fleeing idolatry. What is an idol in my life I had to flee? It was absolutely my personal image and reputation. I cared way entirely too much of what people thought about me, how they perceived me. And I had to crucify that. I had to flee from it. And what that meant was deleting social media for a few years. Years. It means putting my face to the ground, humbling myself before the Lord, asking him to help me be satisfied with how he perceives me. Not any man. That's what it looks like to flee idolatry. What is that for you? What are the idols in your life that you have to flee from? Whatever you have to do, flee from idolatry. God is faithful. He is faithful to help you overcome temptation. But if you don't accept his help, he is also faithful to overthrow you and your desire for evil. Be warned. God is faithful to overthrow those who desire evil, but he is also faithful to help you overcome temptation.